Welcome to the Venture Fizz Podcast. I'm Keith Klein, the host of our show. In this podcast, I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. And for today's episode, I interviewed Charles Teague. He is the CEO and co-founder of Lose It. If you're not familiar with Lose It, it is a very successful consumer company in Boston with over 35 million downloads. They were actually one of the first apps in the Apple App Store. Speaking of which, do you remember those early iPhone commercials, the ones where they would say there's an app for that? Well, Lose It was actually featured in one of those commercials, and that helped them gain national exposure. Since then, Lose It has helped people lose over 70 million pounds, which is really extraordinary. In this podcast, we cover a lot of ground. We chat about Charles's professional journey, which includes being part of a lair that went public, then starting his own company that was acquired by Microsoft, how the first-generation iPhone changed everything for him, the background story on Lose It. Then we talk about other more advice-oriented uh, subjects for entrepreneurs, like the benefits of running a capital-efficient company, how they figured out how to convert users to their premium model, and so much more. Okay, one quick sidestep before we get into my interview with Charles. Are you signed up for the VentureFizz weekly email? It's a highly curated digest of everything you need to know about the Boston tech scene. If you're not a subscriber, go to VentureFizz.com backslash email to sign up. It's that one email a week that you don't want to miss. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Charles. Charles, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, so... These interviews, I love to go way back into a person's background. I even want to go way back to where'd you grow up? What did your parents do for work? That foundation level of what you became. Uh, so, well, so I, I, uh, I guess I grew up in a small town in the middle of Kansas, uh, a town called McPherson, Kansas, uh, about an hour north of Wichita. Um, my father was an industrial engineer at a fiberglass factory in, uh, in McPherson. Uh, that's where I spent my time in high school. Uh, and then once I left high school, I ended up in Minnesota at a college called McAllister College. Uh, and, and from there, once I graduated with a degree in political science, I launched my technology career. A really <laughs> obvious, really obvious path for a person from Kansas. Well, political science, right? So there's lots of people in you know that type of degree in the tech industry, because I guess you kind of graduate and the world is your oyster of what you want to do next, right? It didn't feel like it when I graduated. When I, when I graduated, it felt more like, I have a degree where now I can't get a job. <laughs> so I spent the first couple of months trying to figure out what exactly you do with a political science degree. And I had a very peculiar political science degree because I was very interested in quantitative research. Uh, and that was not a typical thing that political scientists were that interested in at that point in time. Uh, so I had lots of trouble figuring out what to do next uh, once I graduated. But, but technology is where I ended up, thank goodness. And, and how? How did you end up at Allaire? Well, so so... I started in technology actually way back in the day. So I was programming computers starting with, uh, what was it at the time it was a Timex Sinclair 1000. It was a little home computer sure. a long time ago. That was my very first computer. And so okay. starting in elementary school, I was doing programming. I did computer camps. Um, but the fascinating thing is somehow I got to college and it never occurred to me that you could, that was like a thing you could study. Mm -hmm. So it just never, I never thought like, oh, I should maybe take a computer science class. Uh, so I got all the way through school um, and I, I basically got connected with uh, another guy named J.J. Allaire, uh, who was starting a company in Minneapolis. He had actually built this really cool product called Cold Fusion. The Internet was sort of just becoming popular and Cold Fusion was a was a platform that made the Internet programmable. Um, and so uh, he was just looking for someone basically to do a little bit of uh, administrative work, to answer the phones, maybe to do some technical support. 
Uh, I was having trouble finding a job. Uh, and so it was a match made in heaven. So, so I, I sort of got connected with JJ, uh, you know, and like I said, started, started answering the phone, sending faxes, uh, doing whatever he needed me to do in those really early days. And this was 1995. This was 1995. Yeah, this was 1995. And I, I don't think I realized the lair was started in uh, Minneapolis. Yeah, so it was started. It was started in Minneapolis in 1995 by by JJ. He brought on board ultimately Jeremy, Adam Barry, uh, you know, and then probably about I think we were about ten other people, and about half of those people were from the all from the same college, from McAllister College, mm-hmm. uh, and a whole bunch of us. I actually was just recently at a McAllister College uh, sort of entrepreneur reunion, and a whole ton of those people are still here in Boston, uh, still doing some pretty interesting stuff. So at at one point, you and the company moved to Boston. Yeah. So the company raised uh, raised money from Polaris Venture Capital, uh, which was based in Boston here at the time. Uh, and they basically they they basically said, well, you've got a choice. You know, you can go east or west. You know, we don't think you're going to be able to hire the types of people you want to hire in Minneapolis. Um, and so you should come to Boston, or you should go to Silicon Valley. Uh, and so I think there was a lot of. Uh, consternation, thought process to try to figure that out. But ultimately, we ended up here in Boston, in part because I think we felt like Polaris had such a great uh, sort of base, had knew so many people, knew so many companies. And so it made that sort of initial round of hiring, I think, a lot easier, uh, a lot easier. So we relocated here in, I think, 1996. And then Allaire just was a rocket ship, right? With the go-go. And then Allaire was a complete rocket Yeah. It's a tough, it's actually a really tough way to start your career. <laughs> like because it's sort of it, it's you know you hear this about sports but it's kind of the same thing then you're just like oh so I guess you just like join a startup and then it goes public like that's <laughs> the way you, I don't know why more people don't do this like this works great so easy <laughs> and Larry did end up going public what, what year was it uh, that was right I, I want to say it was 1999 it was basically a year before the entire internet economy was destroyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so just in time and then we participated in that destruction and then we ultimately the company was sold to macromedia mm-hmm. uh, you know so they they sort of they they bought it um and then i joined macromedia and was working at macromedia too now what was your career trajectory over that time alaire macromedia um you know starting out you know answering phones and responding to faxes so w- w- what did your career look like so it, it went from there uh, to tech support so then i i really learned the cold fusion product and learned how to support customers. Uh, then it went into internal systems. And so then I built using cold fusion, all the internal systems that ran a bunch of the financial and operational components of the Allaire business, uh, the e-commerce systems, the website, all that stuff. Uh, and then, then I moved over to product development. And so I worked on uh, a product there called Allaire Spectra, um, which was built on top of cold fusion. I ultimately took over the cold fusion team. And then became responsible for running the actual Cold Fusion product uh, right around the time of the Macromedia acquisition. And so at that point, that was a pretty big team. We were building a pretty big product with a lot of a lot of customers. Which I was going to highlight, like Cold Fusion was like a big deal. Like that was like one of the primary languages for development on the web, right? It was really, yeah, it was really, really popular. It was before sort of the wave of open source technology came right at the beginning of the Java, sort of the Java on the server revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the early days, it was awesome. And part of what was great about it was it made programming the web so easy for people. Um, it was really simple. It looked like HTML. 
Uh, and so, so people love that product. People still love that product. I still, I still love when I come across a website that uses cold fusion and I see that dot CFM extension, mm. I get a little bit excited. <laughs> That's awesome. So then from there, you and JJ went on to start another company on Folio. Yes. Yeah. So then I, uh, so I, I stayed through with Macromedia. Um, and then, uh, after, after a bit with Macromedia, sort of decided I needed to do something different. And that was right at the time when JJ was starting a new company uh, called Onfolio. And Onfolio, we made a couple different products. The first product we made was a product that, that helped you capture, organize, and share what you found on the internet. And so it was actually this really cool app. It was built into a browser and it let you sort of, as you use the internet, you could highlight snippets of pages or highlight whole pages and save copies of them and compose them and organize them in folders. And so in some ways it's almost like- um, Like Evernote? Like it could be like Evernote, it could be like Delicious, if you remember Delicious. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, sort of a hybrid of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, and so really wonderful product. Um, and then uh, we also built a product that ultimately ended up being called Windows Live Writer, uh, which uh, once, once Onfolio became a part of Microsoft, uh, which was uh, basically a WYSIWYG blogging tool. And so it was, you know, you can think about it like Microsoft Word for blogging. It had some really special and cool things. So it had a really amazing editing experience. The coolest thing that we did with that was we actually would download from your blog the exact CSS and HTML for your blog and let you edit it, not in sort of a bold looks bold, but in this is exactly what your blog looks like. So whatever fonts and styles and every images, everything, you're going to see exactly what this is going to look like when it's posted. And at the time, that was amazingly revolutionary because that this was in the days when you were still in the in the little text boxes on the web pages uh, posting to your blog. So, so we made both of those products, and that company we sold to Microsoft in 2005. Um, and so we sold. We were 12 people. We never raised any money. We stayed nice and small, um, and uh, uh, we sold that to Microsoft. And all of us picked up and moved to Seattle. <laughs> and wow! Worked, worked for Microsoft. <laughs> And so what did Microsoft end up doing with that product? Did they make it part of, you know, one of their suites or? Yeah. So, so we ended up on what was called the Windows Live team. And so the Windows Live team was basically designed to do online extensions for Windows. And so that was, you know, their mail client, their photos client, uh, Windows Live Writer, uh, Messenger, you know, so sort of all that whole big bundle of stuff. And so we ended up on that team. Um, there was a, there was actually a, a thing called Windows Live Spaces, which some crazy people might remember, which was the Microsoft blogging platform. So we ended up working with those guys. We ended up working with the rest of the Windows Live team. Uh, and ultimately Windows Live Writer went to market and it was quietly, I think was one of the, I mean, I'm really proud to have worked on it because it was quietly, you know, it was not as popular as Messenger. Messenger was a hundred times as popular. But the people who loved Windows Live Writer, they loved it. Uh, and, and so that was my first taste, you know, with Cold Fusion, I think I learned and got to experience, uh, technical folks and IT folks that got to do something different. They could program the web now and that was exciting and that changed their career trajectory. With Windows Live Writer, it started to achieve a bigger scale where it was like, okay, well, this is less sophisticated product, but still a productivity product. And, these people love this thing. They use it all the time and they love it. Um, and there are millions of people using it. And so that, that was like really exciting. And that was in part why we wanted to go to Microsoft was to get millions of people using the product that we were building. 
And it was um, your first foray into like more of a consumer oriented experience. For sure. Yeah, it was definitely the first step in that direction. And it was a good middle step because it wasn't all the way towards a consumer product, which I probably would have had no idea what to do with. Mm -hmm. uh, but it sure headed that way, um, which was great. What was the greatest lesson you learned from working at Microsoft in Seattle? Or um, You know, it's I, I learned a ton working there because, uh, you know, at the time, and, and, you know, this was, I think, before... Uh, Microsoft sort of turned it around in the last five years. I mean, they were never, uh, they've always been a massive and very successful company, even at their low points. Um, but I think at, in the tech industry, it was sort of easy to sort of wave your hands at them and be like, well, you know, they're no, they're no Google and they're no Facebook and they're, you know, uh, they still had amazing people. They had a huge number of amazing people and the level of, of sort of technical skill and technical depth that those people had was off the charts. Um, and so, so it was, that part was a really great thing for me. It actually was secretly like a personal goal of mine. Like I sort of felt like, um, all the way back to the Allaire days, if I could work at Microsoft, that would prove like the pretender, the pretender syndrome, where I feel like I'm not really technical enough and I'm not really good at this would be removed because I worked at Microsoft. Right. And so I was really pumped to, to also just work at Microsoft to experience that it felt like I was at sort of the pinnacle of the industry. Um, but it also did teach me, you know, those were huge teams. They were, they were lumbering sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes they couldn't get out of their own way. Uh, you know, the decision-making was sometimes confusing. And, and so I, you know, it, it did sort of reinforce for me that, that I always wanted to be working on startups, you know? And so it was like, it was right as, as, uh, you know, I, my wife was born and raised in Boston. Here, here in Massachusetts. And so I, I dragged her to Seattle. She was not, she was not excited. She was like, okay, we have to do this for your career. We'll do it. So I dragged her. And then it was about uh, three or four years after we moved there that I sort of was realizing it's, it's time for me to go back and work on a startup now. And I want to go back to Boston to do that. And so I remember coming home that day and talking to her and I got, I, I got home and, and, and we were standing in the kitchen talking and she's like, you know, I'm really glad we did this. You know, this is really starting to feel like home for me. Like, I'm glad we're building our family here. This is great. Uh, and then that was sort of the same day that I'm like, I've got some news for you because uh. <laughs> I feel like I kind of want to quit Microsoft and move back to Boston. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so, uh, so it's funny how those things work out, but that's what I ended up doing. I ended up quitting, quitting Microsoft and moving back to Boston. And, and how, so your next step was, at General Catalyst as a technologist in residence. Like, how does that happen? Like, how do you end up in that type of role in a VC firm? Well, so, the, I mean, the catalyzing event was actually the, the release of the, the first iPhone. And so the first iPhone was released while I was still at Microsoft. It was before you could make apps for it. It was just, you know, just the phone had its own built-in apps. Um, but I was convinced, I mean, people were starting to buy them. I was convinced this is just going to be the stupidest thing ever. Like no one wants a phone where you have to type on the screen. That's going to yeah, be no awful. keyboard. Like everyone yeah. had Blackberries, and it's like yeah, what, a, what a bad idea. Uh, and then I used one for the first time. Mm -hmm. and I was like, like oh, oh. <laughs> this is <laughs> yeah, this is amazing. This is totally amazing. Uh, and so I was really convinced that mobile was a wave that was going to look like the web. It was going to be this humongous industry wave. And I was I was sort of like I don't know. I'm not very good at picking winning ideas, but 
I know that this is going to be a big thing. And so if I can just find something to work on near it, then maybe I can be a part of that. Um, and so that was really what drove me to want to sort of get out of Microsoft and get back to Boston was to work on that. And at the same time, I was talking to David Orfeo, who was formerly the CEO of Allaire when I was working at Allaire and is now one of the partners, one of the original partners at General Catalyst. And so we talked about this and it, it turned out that they were sort of looking for someone to take a closer look at mobile. Uh, you know, they knew I had a strong enterprise background too. So they had some companies that were in that kind of space. And so I might be able to pitch in with some of those companies. So it worked out great. I mean, I really went to General Catalyst feeling like this is going to be the best uh, thing in the world for me because I don't know what I should be working on, but I'm going to see 200 really amazing ideas from other people. And hopefully that's either going to inspire me or that's going to help me find someone that maybe I should be working with that I'm not. Um, and so, so that's, that's what led me there. And it was an amazing experience. It was really uh, eye-opening for me uh, as far as what it's like to be a venture capitalist, how much I'm not, that's not my, my, my job. That's not my role. But, uh, what, but it was what really, was it about that experience that was eye-opening? Uh, well, so, I mean, I'd say uh, there was more, for me, there was more about finance than I expected there to be. I had a really, um, I, I'd say like a really naive understanding of just sort of like, oh, you know, there's a great idea and a great team, go. Like just throw it now, now let's throw $10 million down, go. And I think it probably works that way sometimes. But I think a lot of the time there's also complicated deal structures and previous cap tables and strange other founders that have some interest in things. And it's just everything's a little more complicated than I expected. Um, you know, and I think for me, I have a hard time saying no all the time. And I think that's a huge thing that venture capitalists have to get really good at doing is saying no, like. 10,000 times to every time they say yes. Um, so if you're not a person that loves to say no, it's, it's a pretty rough, uh, pretty rough ride. But I met some amazing people doing that. Um, you know, I met some amazing entrepreneurs here in Boston. Um, and, you know, that's while I was doing that, um, JJ Lair, the same guy that I've been working with that whole time, was actually building an iPhone Air. And so he was been working with Paul D. Christina, who's a designer, a UI designer that we've worked with over the years. And those two were working on an iPhone app. Uh, they were they were debating the name, but it was an iPhone app that sort of helped you keep track of what you were eating, uh, set a budget for you, and, and you sort of stay under that budget to try to lose weight. Uh, and they released that at the, at the end of 2008. And so I was still at General Catalyst. They released uh, that first version of the app that they now called Lose It. Uh, and then at that point, you know, JJ was actually thinking that that was cool. I learned everything I needed to know about mobile. Like I've got a couple other ideas I'd like to go work on. Uh, and so he was trying to figure out what am I supposed to do with, you know, I, I released Lose It. Um, the early feedback was amazing. People loved, loved Lose It so much. Um, and this was like early, early, early days of the app store, right? So yeah, really. It was in the first months after, um, after you could just build apps for the iPhone for the first time. And a, a really amazing thing happened, which is, you know, probably three months after uh, Lose It Lose It was first launched, that first 1.0 version, they actually put it in an Apple ad. I don't know if you remember the, there's an app for that. They had mm -hmm. a whole yeah, series of TV ads. Mm -hmm. um, Lose It was one of the apps in the There's an App for That campaign. And that was being run on national TV, Thursday night prime time, you know, just millions and millions of dollars worth of advertising for Lose It that drove Lose It all the way up to the top of the entire app store. 
Wow. So, uh, so we ended up, I think that happened was really catalyzing event. The other those thing ads, really, like, like those ads, like you don't even know that you're going to appear in those ads. Like it doesn't like Apple just do these things without the companies even knowing. Well, so they, I mean, they do do the, we, we knew something was up. Okay. Um, you know, this was still when it was just JJ, but I was talking to him all the time and he said, you know, Apple, Apple contacted me. It was, it was really strange. You know, they needed me to sign this thing and, okay. and, so uh, they didn't say what it was for, but they needed a special build. Right. You think, should I do the special build? You know, so I'm like, yeah, I don't know yeah. what they're doing, but we probably, you know, seems like a good idea, whatever it is they want to do. Yeah. Uh, and, and so you sort of knew something was coming. Uh, you just didn't know what. And I, I certainly didn't know. I, you know, I don't think I, I knew it was going to be that big. Um, but that happened, you know, and then the other thing that, that JJ did that really got me interested was um, he had like a feedback link in the app, you know, just like in the settings, you know, like, hey, email us some feedback. And it just went to literally like feedback at loseit.com. And he just gave me the Gmail login for that. And he'd never replied to any of those emails. He like, he didn't even open that inbox. It just was like email box where stuff went. And so I opened it and there were like thousands of unread emails. So it, I mean, thousands of people had written in and then you read the emails and they were all love letters. They were all lose. It's amazing. Uh, this was just what I was looking for. This changed my life. Uh, you know, I was pre-diabetic and now, now I'm better. And that's when I was really, I, I sort of hit me. They, you know, Paul and JJ with this first version, they got, they have something that really people just really, really love. Um, you know, and meanwhile, here I am trying to figure out what should I work on in the mobile space? I mean, here's this app that people love that's just sitting here. Why don't I go work on that? Right. Right um, in front of you. Yeah. So, I mean, so JJ had the same concept, which is great. And so we, uh, so we got me involved. I took over and and uh, I've been working on Lose It since. So when you took over, like, do you have any ideas how many users it had at the time? Uh, it was like it had been downloaded maybe more than a million times. Um, you know, the market was still really small. It was still iPhone only. There was no Android at that point. Um, and it was just me. So I mean, for the first year, it was just me by myself. So I started, you know. I took over all the source code. I started adding features, working on the next things, uh, you know, replying to emails um, and sort of took over that for the first year and then just really slowly started growing the company. Um, you know, we, we from the very early days, I think we knew we were going to take a different approach than we had taken with like a layer, which had gone a very traditional sort of raise rounds and rounds and rounds of venture capital. We were going to take a totally different path. You know, I think we really felt like, um, the best path for something like lose it was really slow. You know, we really felt like this is a problem where there's not some foot race. You know, we don't need to be the first to solve weight loss because we don't think that there's anybody that's going to come along and just solve weight loss. And so really for us, we really felt like it's actually about how long we can stay in the market. So how long can we make this thing last? And so that made us get really focused on profitability and the idea that we don't need to depend on other people to stay alive, that we can just depend on ourselves. And you did build a very capital efficient company from day one, although you did raise one round of funding, right? Like, was there one round of funding or was there yeah, multiple? We raised some seed capital from, um, from JJ who threw in some money and from General Catalyst who threw in some money. Uh, and then we raised uh, a five and a half million dollar round, a series A round uh, that was really sort of at the beginning of 2012. Um, but we, 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 we designed, we, we knew that was going to be the last money in. 
Um, and that was a little bit of an opportunistic thing for us. I mean, it wasn't, we actually didn't go out and seek to raise that round. We sort of got approached and it went by people who said, we'd really be interested in working with you and putting some money into this. Um, and so we thought that that might be pretty interesting. And, uh, and so we figured we'd give it a shot. Well, I want to dig deeper into the capital efficient way of building a company. But before they do that, I don't like to assume everyone knows, lose it and kind of scale you guys operate. So if you could just share more with our audience about lose it. Yes. Yeah. So lose it. Yeah, that's great. So lose it is a, is an app uh, for the iPhone for Android that helps people lose weight. Um, you know, in fact, we like to say lose it is weight loss that fits. And the idea really is, um, you know, we want to make it as simple as, uh, uh, as easy as we, as, as we can to help people lose weight. We think we do that by taking the most scientifically validated approaches to weight loss and make them consumer ready, make them really friendly to use. Uh, so lose it basically sets up a calorie budget for you, uh, tells you about how much you should be eating each day. Um, and then as you go through the day, you just log your food, you log your exercise, you stay on your budget and it helps you achieve your weight loss goal. Um, since we started in 2008, we've been downloaded by about uh, 35 million plus people. We're closing on 70 million pounds lost using Lose wow. It. So help people lose a lot of weight with Lose It. Um, and we're still running super strong. So, uh, you know, we're growing year over year still to this day in terms of downloads, in terms of revenue. Um, and so we're, we're still, uh, still driving along. And I think, I think you're right. We've been very quiet. So it wouldn't surprise me if people didn't know Lose It. It wouldn't surprise me if people didn't know Lose It was in Boston. Um, you know, because we're sort of a quiet, a quiet company. Um, but uh, but we've been here from day one. Uh, you know we've been we've been doing our best since day one. But it's you know it's also that um, you know people like to work for a company that has a good like mission attached to it, like a social mission. And to hear that you've helped people lose seventy million pounds is just extraordinary. Yeah, well, I mean, so I, I love that. That's actually one of the things that I'm the most proud of. We're really very committed to that mission. Um, you know, I think. Uh, if you look at, at, at how we act, I think we really try to act, not just say that that's our mission, but act like that's our mission. So the last couple of years, as we've become profitable, one of the things we've done is we've actually rolled out profit sharing for our employees. And so we take a portion of our profits each year. We redistribute that to the employees in the form of an annual bonus. For the first time this year, we're actually incorporating our annual weight loss goal uh, for all of our users as a function in that profit sharing equation. And so this year, the company and the employees will be paid not just on how profitable we can make the company, but how efficiently and effectively we can help people lose weight and how much impact we can have. Wow. Um, what a great metric. To me, that's like, that's, that's what we were doing this for. You know, we're capitalists, but what we wanted to do is have an impact on the world. And we just thought we needed to make a business to do that. Mm -hmm. And so this is the first year we can finally sort of put our money where our mouth is on that, which I'm super excited about. That's a great metric to track people and obviously hold people accountable to. Now, going back to the capital efficient model, um, there's other great examples in Boston, like Wayfair was bootstrapped from the beginning. You know, I just recently interviewed uh, Chad Lawrence from Simply Safe, or same idea until he raised a very large round. Um, so, what's what do you think the benefits are of building a company with that um, you know, type of you know, greedy mentality where you didn't raise, you know, 30, 50 million, 100 million, like each round getting larger and looking for that valuations become a unicorn, right? So, right. so what's, so what's it, you know, what's the benefits of that? Well, so I, to me, a big benefit is time. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think when you raise that capital, 
it's really natural to go on a relatively short clock. And that clock is takes the form of sort of your expected burn through that capital. So you might be on an 18-month sort of cycle where now you're trying to raise capital every 18 months. Uh, it also takes the form, I think, of how you're going to return the investor's money in five to seven years before their fund closes. And so it puts a second clock on, which is sort of like, well, in five to seven years, it'd be great for this thing to either go out of business or to return a whole bunch of money. Uh, and so, so to me, time is like the overwhelming thing. Uh, I think the other thing to me is by going more slowly and by being a little bit more experimental, it actually takes some of the randomness out of the whole process. And so I think when you rush and you go really fast, part of what happens is it starts to look and act more like a lottery ticket where it's like, well, if everything all worked out and you did everything right, then this could be great. But if your timing was wrong, if you missed something, if you were rushing too much, if you if you executed badly, then this is all going to be a failure. Um, when you go a little bit more slowly and only and a more capital efficient, you basically get sort of more bites at that apple. And so you get more tries because you have more time because you're going more slowly. And so it, it does make you, I think it does make it more likely that you're going to succeed over time. You know, it gives you a better chance of making something really meaningful. It may make it a little bit less likely that you're going to make something that is Uber, uh, but sort of in exchange for a higher probability that you're going to make something that's still really, really important. Um, you know, and I think one of the things I would love to be a huge advocate for is, you know, lose it's a small company. Millions of people have used Lose It. I don't think anyone would say we're some big venture capital unicorn, something, something. To me, that's not a, you know, Lose It's having a really great impact on the world. I'm super proud of it. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with building small companies like that. I think it's, uh, I wish more people would build small companies and think of that as an aspiration. Um, because I think a bunch of those small companies like Wayfair grow up and do turn out to be unicorns after all. They just take a different road to get there. Well, the other thing that's been uh, equally impressive is the size of your team. You've done so much with a, you know, in comparative to other venture back companies that have, you know, hundreds of employees that are building code for mobile apps. You've done a lot with a relatively small team. So how do you, uh, you know, how do you hire and then how do you manage a team to accomplish so much? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, so, I mean, the, the team, yeah, so Lose It today is 25 people. That's our whole company. About half of that is engineering. Um, and so the very first thing that I had to figure out, which was a very, you know, you can ask Eric, who runs engineering for me, what a learning process this was for me. I had to learn very quickly that it, we could say no to things. That was super hard because I, I still wanted to do like everything. Uh, so I had in my head, like, we can do everything. We're going to boil the ocean. It's going to be great. And then very quickly, I learned like, okay, we have to distill that list down to like two things. So it's not 25, it's two. Uh, so that's certainly really important. Um, I think, you know, you, we, we definitely design a company that tries to get just massive leverage out of every employee. And so when we hire someone, we want to be able to give them a huge amount of sort of space and leeway to operate. Uh, we don't want to give them tons and tons of management. Um, and in fact, we expect managers primarily to do work. And so all the way up the chain of management, including to myself, we're sort of doing real work beyond management. I'm still doing work on the product from time to time. Uh, you know, and so I think the idea of sort of player coaches, super high leverage from every employee is just ingrained in the company when you get that small. And if you keep things flat, you keep process minimal, 
you know, I think you can be just super, super efficient uh, and, and you can do a lot of pretty cool stuff with a small team. Let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, you've built a consumer company in Boston at scale. You had an early start in the app store, so you kind of got a good head start. But obviously, you've had 35 million downloads. Like, how do you continue to you know grow that number at scale? Where you know, I, I don't hear lose it commercials, or you know, it's like I don't see your ads in magazine. You know, so I'm sure you have a sophisticated digital marketing team, or like, like so, how do you continue to to grow your user base? It's a really, really good uh, question, and and I'd say for us, um, you're right. We don't. Uh, we don't have losing ads, although I actually we're working on that soon. One day soon, hopefully there will be some losing ads for you to hear. Okay. Uh, but uh, we don't have losing ads. And in fact, until last year, we really didn't meaningfully do any kind of paid acquisition of any kind. So we really didn't do marketing. We really didn't do any kind of paid download anything. We just relied on word of mouth on our, our sort of goodwill in the app store. And that drove for probably seven or eight years, just a huge number of downloads for us. It still drives millions of downloads a year for us, even this year. Now, starting last year, we did begin to invest a lot more in actually uh, paying to acquire users. And so for us, that looks like uh, digital marketing programs that are focused on the app stores, on Google AdWords, sort of on the high intent areas uh, of the marketplace. Um, and we've had a huge amount of success with those things. Um, the big breakthrough for us, it actually, you know, in terms of the way you build that business, the big breakthrough for us is actually getting really good at converting users to our premium version. And so one of the things we didn't talk about is how we actually make money, mm -hmm. which is we have a basically a freemium business model. And so we have sort of an ad supported free version that really the ads don't really generate that meaningful amount of uh, money for us. And then we have a premium version that's $40 a year. Uh, and, and really, we make the lion's share of our money by convincing people to upgrade to premium. And, uh, you know, for years and years and years, we just weren't that good at that. Um, we hadn't developed that expertise yet. Um, I hadn't developed the temperament to want to do that. You know, I really wanted people to come to that on their own versus try to market to them. Um, but over time, we, I developed that temperament. The team developed that expertise. Uh, and we got really good at converting people to premium. And that actually drives your average value per user up a lot. And so suddenly now you can do the math and say, well, if a user costs us $1.50, okay, like fair, that, that's fine. That's actually profitable for us to spend that money. Whereas two years ago, that might have been us losing a dollar or a dollar twenty-five every time we did that. Um, and that goes back to what you were saying about sort of venture capital versus not. It's like, we don't have the money. We're bootstrapped. So we can't go burn a million dollars and not have it at least return something. Now, is that conversion and in-app experience where you're suggesting to the consumer like, hey, you know, maybe you should consider upgrading. Like what's the, what was, what did the data tell you that ultimately led you down the path where, wow, we finally figured this out? Well, so, yeah, so uh, it is exactly that. It's, it's primarily in app. And in some ways it was a lot about us coming to the realization that that's what it was. And so in the early days, the app experience really said almost nothing about premium. And we would do things like email users and say, Hey, did you know there's premium? And uh, that, so, you know, starting with that sort of view and then going towards, well, we should actually, you know, tell them about premium inside the product that they're using. That's where they're actually located. So let's make premium visible to them and then really continuing to advance that. And so to say, 
well, let's figure out more value we can put in premium. Let's show the user that that value is available. You know, so we have a, a in our example is we have a feature called patterns. It's a really cool feature that basically as you're tracking your food and your exercise, it looks at, uh, you know, foods or meals or exercises that are correlated with a sort of a good day for you. And so it tries to find patterns in foods that work well for you or foods that don't work well for you. Um, and, and it used to be that I would say, well, you can't even tell we have that feature unless you buy a premium license and then you can go find that feature in our insight section. Now we've started doing things like actually surfacing some of those insights. So picking one and saying, well, we'll, we'll surface this to free users and let them see, you know, that, uh, you know, protein shakes are really working for you. Uh, and start to give them a taste of what that's like and what the benefits of premium are. And so really, I, I, you know, I wish I could say it was, uh, you know, we uncovered something magic. What we really just uncovered was you need to communicate with your users about what it is you have and why it's valuable. And in the case of a product like Lose It, I think you have to start to show them the value. It's not enough to simply like report that there's value. You need to really let them experience some of that value uh, and get a taste for what it is. Boston gets this reputation that, oh, you can't build consumer companies in Boston, you know, just go to the Valley or go to New York. <laughs> Obviously, there's lots of exceptions to that rule. Um, and I'm one of the advocates that, no, there's consumer in Boston, lose it's one of them. So yep. what, like, what, what are your thoughts on that? Like kind of like, you know, when it comes to maybe hiring or, you know, just building, you know, hiring people with that consumer mobile experience type of backgrounds, that must be a challenge. Yeah, it is. Um, it is a challenge, although, I mean, I think it's just a challenge hiring engineering uh, at all of any kind right now. Yeah. You know, and so I'd say we don't even put that filter on it. We really just look for, uh, you know, engineers that have talent and experience in the types of platforms that we're interested in. Um, but even that's just super duper challenging. So I think that that's that's uh, that's a hard part, I think. You know, one of the things that I've seen changing has been attitudes about startups in Boston. And so I'd say, uh, you know, maybe when we were doing Onfolio, you know, when we started Onfolio, it was sort of really in the dark days of, of uh, startups. You know, the Internet had sort of imploded. Uh, everyone was fleeing to the big companies trying to get a stable job. Uh, and I think... Um, you know, the change from then to now is amazing because there's a, I think there's a ton of people that are really interested in working in startups. And if you were to ask me, not ever having worked in Silicon Valley, that seems like one of the really big differences is that there, there's sort of an assumption like, well, everyone's going to be working in a startup. And here there was sort of like, well, everyone's going to be working in a big company and some people are going to do startups. I think that's changing, you know, and, and we have tons of people that are interested in working at Lose It Now, which is great. Um, there's a, other really great companies out there. There was Runkeeper in the health and fitness space. You know, you highlighted Wayfair. Jeremy Lair is doing Circle Financial, which is not consumer, but is kind of consumer. It's just yeah. consumer financial. Right. Um, and so there's some really, you know, there are some big companies here uh, that, that I think, you know, just maybe don't somehow garner the same attention, but, but are just grinding away, just doing our thing. Yeah. I mean, it's just the classic mentality of, you know, the Boston entrepreneur head down, very humble, but building meaningful businesses at scale with revenue and profitability, right? So it's uh, it's just a different mindset. But um, you know, are there you know you mentioned some great companies? Are there any other companies or entrepreneurs that you admire in Boston? Uh, well, I mean, so yeah, I mean, we covered a bunch right there. Of course, I yeah. mean, uh, you know, 
JJ is is certainly one of those folks. Um, you know, I've been talking to Jason for years, uh, Jason Jacobs uh, from Runkeeper, mm -hmm. um, in part just because we were all, always doing things that are so similar. Our companies were at such similar stages. He took a different approach. He took a more traditional approach. But had just an amazing success with that product. It had a great product too. Um, you know, and so I'd say I, I have a huge amount of respect for what he did with that, in part because I saw the way he built that. I saw how much of himself he put into that company from the very, very early days. Uh, and I, I think that's super admirable. I look at someone like Jeremy Allaire, uh, who's doing Circle Financial. He does everything so much differently than me. I mean, he's I, for those of you who haven't ever met Jeremy or talked to Jeremy, he's like the most persuasive person that you've ever met on your, in your entire life. I mean, this guy. He's incredible and he he's incredible at raising capital and he has incredibly huge ambitions for what he does. And so he puts those things together and really wants to go big. Um, and, and to me, that's a, that's not my nature. And so it's, it's really something uh, I look at in him and I, I have a great deal of admiration for, um, you know, and then and, you know, I've been working my whole career with JJ Lair. So I mean, that's uh, of sort of all the people that, that I'd have to pick and say, has been someone who's acted as both a role model for me and I'd say a mentor for me, that, that would be JJ. I mean, I've been, I've been learning for him now, learning from him for probably 20 years now, 25 years. That's amazing. Yeah. You've never had to like interview for a job other than the first one coming out of college, right? <laughs> That's Yeah, exactly. And even that one, I think we met over a beer. So it was pretty low key. <laughs> Never had to go through those awkward moments of interviewing. Yeah, thank God. Well, I mean, I always laughed that I I, I feel like I could never get a job anywhere. That was actually the, the funniest <laughs> part about the whole like, hey, I, I got to work for Microsoft. Was right. I was like, I think the only way I'm going to get to work for Microsoft is if I sell a company to them because they'll never hire me if they interview me. <laughs> Not employable. You have to start your own companies. Exactly. <laughs> Outside of work, like what do you do for fun? Uh, you know, I... This is this is a hard question for me. I so I, I have a family. I love my family, so I spend a ton of time with my family. That's probably like my number one focus uh, outside of outside of work. Um, you know, I like uh, I, I like playing ice hockey. My son plays ice hockey. You know, so I try to. It's been a rough it's been a rough few months for me. I haven't I've not been doing that, but I'd say a few months ago, every Thursday night, you could find me at a rink with some buddies uh, out there uh, flailing around. Uh, doing our best. Um, so I do that. Um, you know, I love to get outside when I can hiking, skiing, uh, any of the outdoor stuff, camping, love all that stuff. Growing up in Kansas, I spent a huge amount of time uh, in the outdoors because if you're in a small town in Kansas, what else are you going to do? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so love that stuff. But I'll tell you between work and family, uh, you know, I don't know if you've got a family, Keith, but it, you know, it, those two things add up to like a lot of time. I, I can relate. We're uh, pretty much the same age and I have, you know, two girls, 12 and 14. So that's, you know, pretty yeah. much what your life is focused on. And We're, yeah, I'm exactly the same spot, a boy and a girl, 11 and 13, yep. you know, and it's just, that's the footprint of that is a, is a big, big footprint. It certainly is, but it's a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I always like to turn the mic back over at the end here. So if there's anything that you want to promote, certainly, you know, feel free. Uh, well, so I'd say that, you know, the biggest thing I want to say is, uh, you know, Lose It is a great company and we're looking for great people to be a part of it. Um, we're still small. And so when you when you come join Lose It, you really have a big, big impact on what it is we do every day. Uh, and even though we're small, it's a big amplifier because we reach millions of people every month. 
And so if you can come want to come be a part of Lose It, I think you can have a super big impact on the world and have a lot of fun while you're doing it. So uh, so please think think a little bit about that. You can learn more about us, I think, at VentureFizz. Uh, Correct. You know, so that's one way you can come to loseit.com, learn about us there. Uh, and we, we'd love for you to check us out and, and send, drop us a line if you're interested. Yep. So Lose It is hiring across multiple roles, and you can certainly check out their openings on their biz page on VentureFizz or direct on their own careers page. Well, Charles, thanks so much for sharing your background. It was great just to kind of relive some of the, the days of the early, you know, 1.0 era. I'm, I'm a historian. I just love talking about <laughs> the history of tech companies in Boston. But uh, thanks for also sharing your words of wisdom. And uh, just thanks for your time. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.